Omens. Chapter 2, Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, it's uh, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and they'll put one in your hand and uh, it'll be marked to our passage we're studying today. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from uh, the Lord to you uh, today. Make a great friend of it and uh, read it daily. You won't be disappointed. In, we begin in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, Indeed, you are called a Jew, <clears throat> and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. And you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Do you, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And therefore, if an uncircumcised man that is a Gentile keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor, uh, even, you, even with your uh, written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in uh, the flesh." But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the unfaithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may uh, overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, Paul says. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my life to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously uh, accused, uh, uh, reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. And then in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and, and all the world, uh, Jew and Gentile, may be guilty before God. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then finally, verse 31, uh, 
do we then make void law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let's pray together now. Father, as always, we are humbled by the privilege of being able to study your word. We are humbled by the fact that we get to hold a Bible in our hands, your revelation of yourself and your will to us. We are humbled, Lord, to be able to study your word in fellowship with your Holy Spirit. And the exciting thing that occurs within our hearts when you add your witness to your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives and and to uh, be able to study your word, which heaven and earth is one day going to give, uh, go away. It's going to melt with a fervent heat, but your word will never go away. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning that uh, we just want to worship you as we do. We want to explore you, your wisdom, your truth, what it is that you have to say to us. Thank you that you have something to say to us. And so we bless you as we study your word, desiring to hear the fullness of your heart this morning. And we ask all of these things, pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In the first three chapters of the book of, book of Romans, chapters, the Apostle Paul establishes the guilt of all of mankind uh, before uh, God, that all of mankind are, are deserving of his judgment and thus in need of the gospel, in need of the salvation and the forgiveness of sins that are found uh, in Jesus. In chapter 1, Paul focused specifically on the guilt of, uh, of the Gentile world before God. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, this is the out-and-out uh, pagan, those who, as he described them, refuse the witness of the creation to a creator. They have no interest in acknowledging the existence of God. In fact, they deliberately suppress the truth of the existence of God uh, in order to protect the practice of some sin within their lives. Paul further described them as those who would not, do not like to retain even a thought about God in their minds. They consider uh, any thought concerning God in their minds to be something that's unworthy of them. In the first 16 verses of chapter 2, as we looked at last time, Paul then moved on to establish the guilt of the moral person, uh, the morally educated uh, person before God. And he did so on the basis of this thing called conscience, that our very consciences expose us as sinners and in need of a Savior. And the fact that none of us live up to the standard of our consciences, which is that God-given uh, standard of right and wrong that each of us are born with. In this passage this morning is, uh, uh, that we're studying, Paul now establishes the guilt of the Jew. And not only the guilt of the Jew, but far beyond that, the guilt of religious men and women uh, altogether. Because as he condemns the Jews and 
the Jew and reveals, exposes to the Jew their need for salvation in Christ, then if the Jew cannot perform or earn uh, their way into heaven on the basis of religious works, then Paul is uh, also declaring that no religion, the religious person of any religion uh, can. And Paul uh, establishes the guilt of the Jew before God and the need of a Savior in the gospel on the basis of uh, the law of Moses. In the same way that Paul had earlier uh, anticipated the protest of the moralist, who looks and says, Paul, as you describe the Gentile world in chapter 1 and uh, in all of its debauchery and all of its darkness and, and, uh, and so forth, and immediately Paul anticipates the protest of the moralist at being thrown into the same lump as, of, uh, as the out-and-out -out pagans and, uh, and then proceeding to establish their guilt on the basis of, of conscience. Paul now anticipates a protest uh, by the Jew against being lumped in with Gentiles on any level, on being uh, lumped in with Gentiles in terms of being seen as sinners on the same level uh, as Gentiles are in the eyes of God. In other words, they're communicating, and, the, and the, the protest that Paul is addressing is, Paul, you don't mean to tell us that as Jews, we are guilty before, as guilty before God as the Gentiles are, uh, that we are as in much in need of God's grace and forgiveness as they are. You're not uh, uh, supposing to speak that to us, are you? And Paul's answer to all of this is that they were even more guilty uh, than the Gentiles in the eyes of God for their sinful condition on the basis of the fact that privilege comes with uh, responsibility. In other words, the out-and-out -out pagan, they were guilty for their sinful practices before God on the basis of the fact that creation speaks of a creator. Uh, concerning uh, the morally educated Gentiles, they were guilty for their sinful practices in the eyes of God on the basis of the witness of both creation and conscience. But the Jews, when they sinned, they committed their sin not only against the light of creation, not only against the light and the revelation of conscience, but they also sinned against something that was uniquely given to them, and that is the very law of God, the very law of Moses. And, and Paul lays out uh, the, the boast of the Jews in verses 17 through 20. He lays out for us uh, to, to show us how the Jews saw themselves in relationship to the Gentile world and how as a result of that, they were convinced that God's judgment would never come upon them as it would come upon a Gentile, and if it ever did come near to them, it would never be as harsh or as severe as, as God would judge the, the Gentiles. You notice the description in verse 17, they boasted in the fact that they were Jews, the fact that they were God's chosen people, the apple of his uh, eye. Uh, second, in verse 17, they boasted in the fact that they relied upon the law of Moses. Of all of the peoples in the world, who did God choose uh, to provide the law of Moses to, to introduce it into human history through? He did it through the Jews. 
And they trusted uh, that on the basis of this fact alone, that of all of the peoples of the world, God brought the law, his law, into the world through the Jews, that somehow they were shielded from God's judgment in a way that the Gentile world was not. Verse 17, they boasted in their relationship with God. In other words, they had a, a, a relationship with the God of the Bible with the true and the living God, with the God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And as they looked at the relationship that they had with this God, as he's described in the scriptures, and then looked at the Gentile world living all around them, looking at what the Gentile world worship, busy worshiping these idols made of wood and stone. And they had this covenantal relationship with God. They had a relationship with God that had been established through Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when the Lord spoke to Abram and said, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And the Jews were a part of that nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. They further boasted in the fact in verse 18 that they knew God's will. Beyond the witness and instruction of conscience, they possessed the unparalleled revelation of the will of God at that time. They not only possessed the Ten Commandments, but they possessed the 613 commandments that constituted the law of Moses. In verse 18 further, they could approve the things that are excellent. Again, while the rest of the Gentile world would wake up uh, every single day and uh, without any kind of codified law, no instruction on how to live, every day the Gentile would wake up and try figure out what is right and what is wrong. What is the definition of right and wrong? Uh, what is the basis that we're going to make our decisions on uh, in life? And trying to do all of that in the midst of the nitty-gritty uh, of life, taking wild stabs at what right and wrong is, guessing at it constantly concerning the Jew having the law. Uh, they knew what God had to say concerning uh, the meaning and the purpose of life, concerning marriage and human sexuality, interpersonal relationships, the importance of honesty and justice and business. The law even included laws related to diet and, and uh, personal hygiene and so forth. And the Jew lived every day with all of that, uh, perfectly and wonderfully defined for him in contrast to the Gentile world. And imagine the incredible advantage that it was to them to raise their children and live themselves in, in such an excellent law. You think about uh, the latchkey child who essentially raises himself or herself without any input from adults or any input from, from parents or any kind of guidance. And here they are, they're left to themselves and they're forced now to try and discover uh, life and right and wrong and, and uh, how to live and to, and to discover all of it by trial and error. And you put that child in contrast to the child who's raised in a loving home, filled with instruction concerning 
concerning right and wrong, instruction concerning every conceivable situation that they might face in the course of their life, every fork in the road that they might face in the course of their uh, life. And the one, the, the, the former child, is almost destined to become a casualty in life apart from the grace of God, while the other has been given everything needed to be successful. The one enters into adult life light years ahead of the other. And so it was concerning the great gap of the quality of life between the Jewish world and the Gentile world at the time. And then further we're told in verse 18 that they were instructed out of the law of Moses. The law was their source of discernment. It was the, it was the source of the very quality of life that they lived Further in verse uh, 19, they considered themselves to be a, a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, referring uh, to the Gentiles. Morally speaking, they looked at the Gentile world and they realized, absolutely true, but they would look at it and say, it has nothing to offer us in terms of instruction. It has nothing to offer us in terms of any kind of light or revelation related to morality or related to spirituality. It has nothing to offer us that can improve upon even one of the 613 commandments that constitute uh, the law of Moses. And then in verse 20, they considered themselves to be uh, instructors of the foolish, again speaking of the Gentiles, a teacher of babes, speaking of the Gentiles again, and uniquely qualified uh, to instruct the Gentile world, not to learn from them, but to teach them, and uniquely qualified to do so by virtue of the knowledge and the truth that they possessed in the law of Moses. And as Paul lists these eight moral and religious characteristics of, of the Jews in contrast to the Gentile world uh, all around them, any Jew that would have listened to what Paul was saying here or read it upon the page would have been in full agreement with, with uh, uh, the assessment here. They would have agreed that these things made them morally superior in contrast to the Gentile world. But... And this but is significant. As Paul goes on then to explain in verses 21 through 24, while the Jews were better than the rest of humanity in terms of spiritual privilege and possession, in terms of practice, though, they failed to keep the high standard of the law of Moses as surely as the Gentiles did. And so in verses 21 through 28, 29 rather, God establishes the guilt, uh, Paul does, establishes the guilt of the Jew before God. And he bases it, interestingly enough, on the very thing that they boasted in the most, and that was on the law of Moses, you notice in verses 21 through 24. And he confronts them with five very, very pointed uh, questions. 20, verse 21, you therefore who teach another, that is uh, concerning the law, uh, do you not teach yourself? Verse 21, you who teach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Do you say, you who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your voice boast in the law, do you dishonor God through uh, breaking the law? 
And what Paul is communicating here is they taught others, but they didn't teach themselves. They preached against stealing, and yet they stole. They preached against adultery, and yet they committed adultery. They abhorred idols, but stole from pagan temples. They found a way of profiting off of them in some way. They bragged about the law, but they then dishonored God continually in the breaking of that same law. And the upshot of all of this in verse 24 was that it resulted in God's name being blasphemed among the Gentiles. And Paul makes a quote from the Old Testament in verse 24, and interestingly, he quotes from Ezekiel in the Old Testament. And you might remember that Ezekiel was a prophet, a Jewish prophet, whose prophecies were given to the Jewish people while they were in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, while they were in that 70-year period in which they were in cap, uh, in capt, uh, uh, captive, held captive in the Babylonian empire. And why did they end up in that captivity? Because they had so given themselves to sin, to wickedness, to adultery, to idolatry, to the blaspheming of God in their life in violation of the law of Moses, though celebrating the law of Moses, that finally God came to a point where he said, I'm going to take and place you and chasten you by causing you to be defeated by the Babylonians and taken into captivity to bring an end to this. No honest Jew and no student of the Old Testament can look at the law and the prophets that constitute the Old Testament and ever see how a Jewish person could ever sit down and say, I'm going to establish my righteousness before God on the basis of the law. They broke the law. They rebelled against the law. They violated the law throughout the entirety of their history from the time that the law of Moses was given them all the way through the, the, the record of, of the Old Testament. And as is always the case when a person claims to represent God in that situation, that when they ended up being defeated by the Babylonians and taken into the Babylonian captivity, it wasn't merely a reflection upon them. It was a reflection upon their God. Uh, and so here they are, they, they're claiming to worship God. They're claiming to know God. God is forced to chasten them, take them into captivity. The world doesn't understand the nuances of any of this. The Gentile world looked at it and they said, this is a reflection on the feebleness of their God. The gods of the Babylonians are greater than the gods of the Jews. Here you have a God of the Jews that can't even protect his own temple, can't even keep his own people within the land. Why would we ever want to have anything uh, to do with God. And in the same way, when people find out that we're a Christian and they begin to watch our lives, our lives no longer merely reflect upon ourselves at this point. They're a reflection upon God. And th this long history from one end of the Old Testament to the other, they had violated the law of Moses in every way that you could violate the law of Moses. And at this point, in the light of this very long history of rebellion against God and his uh, uh, commandments, uh, no honest Jew, as, as Paul quotes the Old Testament and brings it to the mind of the Jew, no honest Jew could have responded to what Paul was writing uh, here with anything but a confession. 
uh, that they had a long history of failing miserably in keeping the law on a national level, but also on an individual level. And then to confess that there was, has always been, again, both on a national level and an individual level, a wide gap between the standard of conduct demanded by the law of Moses that they so revered on the one hand, and then their actual practices, the life that they actually lived. No one could complain or no one could protest against the observation that the law of Moses exposed them to be sinners in need of God's salvation every bit as much as it exposed the Gentiles. And the huge and unspeakably tragic mistake that the Jews made concerning the law of Moses and this mistake was on steroids by the time uh, Jesus came into the world in his incarnation and began his, his public ministry, was that the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus, they had taken and turned the law of Moses into something that God had never intended it to be. In fact, they had turned it on its head. They had made it into the exact opposite of what God intended the law of Moses to accomplish in a human life. And namely, they declared that the law of Moses was the means by which a person could be saved by keeping the Old Testament law. And so they taught that a person could establish their own righteousness, their own rightness, their own right onness in the sight of God and um, and, and that kind of standing before God on the basis of their good works, on the basis of the keeping of the law of Moses. And the problem with that interpretation of the law, in addition uh, to the fact that Abraham was declared righteous by God on the basis of faith 430 years before the law was ever given, as Paul is going to get into that in chapter 4, but as the Holy Spirit brings out uh, here in the, in the Scriptures, the problem with trying to establish a relationship with God or make myself good enough on the basis of my own works and my own human effort, good enough to get into heaven, is that no one can be saved and no one can make themselves acceptable by keeping the law of Moses for the simple reason that no mere man can keep the law of Moses. No one ever has, no one is, and no one ever will. Only Jesus uniquely uh, kept the law of Moses. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, speaking to a Jewish crowd. <clears throat> he said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, these were the religious heroes of the, of the day. These were the most serious people uh, in terms of, of Jewish religion. And, and yet Jesus said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And everyone that heard that statement of Jesus on that uh, Mount of Beatitudes on that day would have nudged the person next to them and said, excuse me, but did you just hear the door of heaven closing to each of us? In the mind of the Jew, if the scribes and the Pharisees 
weren't good enough or righteous enough to get into heaven as Jesus was declaring, then what hope did any of the other Jews have in, in, in uh, getting there uh, as well? But Jesus was simply communicating that entrance into heaven can never be gained through good works or human effort, even the most religious, the most serious or sincere of religious people cannot attain to it. It only happens by receiving the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life by putting our faith in Him. Well, all of that now then raises the question of what is to be a person's understanding of the law? Uh, what is to be our understanding of the law as, as Christians? First of all, we are never to view the law of Moses as some terrible thing or some anti-New Covenant thing or some anti-Jesus uh, thing. Uh, even in the uh, New Testament, the Holy Spirit declares the law to be good. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill it. The Apostle Paul wrote in this regard to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, but we know that the law is good, but then he qualifies it if one uses it lawfully. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Paul said, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law of Moses. The second thing that's important to understand in this regard concerning uh, is uh, that though the law is good, it is only good for what God intended it to be. And so it's very important to understand God's intent and his purpose for the law of Moses. Again, the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day made the law of Moses the exact opposite of what God intended it to be. The apostle Paul wrote concerning the purpose of the law, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, what purpose then does the law have? It was added because of transgressions. He then goes on further in the passage and says, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were all kept guard under the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. One of the purposes of the law is to expose each and every one of us as sinners, as being less than perfect, and as a result of being sinners, being disqualified in and of ourselves, forever earning our way into heaven. When you take the perfection of those 613 laws that constitute the law of Moses, and you put them up against any human life, including your human life, my life, you put them up against any human life, and they will reveal that human life to be crooked. 
Maybe you've been to a lumber yard and doing a construction project, and you find an absolutely perfectly straight two-by-four, and then you go through the pile now, weighing all of the, comparing all of the rest of the two-by-fours in comparison to this per- perfect two-by-four, and what do you do? You go through the entire pile. It all becomes a heap over here because in the light of perfection, they all look bowed. They all looked, uh, uh, look warped and, and crooked. And in the same way, when that law of Moses is laid alongside any of our lives, it reveals each and every one of us to be sinners, to be bent and to be bowed and to be crooked, to be less than perfect. And as Paul stated in Romans chapter 3, one of the verses that we read, verse 20, notice it. And he says, therefore, this is the point he's making here, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And why this exposure? Why this exposure of the law of Moses? Why is it so important? Because we have to know that we are a sinner first in order to then see our need for a Savior. And that's what the law of Moses did. It exposed us and does expose us as transgressors. And this is why the law of Moses is likened to a tutor or a a schoolmaster by Paul, Uh, a teacher. A teacher is someone who teaches someone something. And the law of Moses teaches each of us that we are sinners. And all day, every day, it drives home the same point like a great flashing neon light in the dark. It declares to us, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you are a sinner, you cannot earn your way into heaven, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. And in this way, the law of Moses keeps me from ever fooling myself by thinking that I can ever make myself acceptable to God by my own effort. And what it does is it causes me to despair of ever being able to establish my righteousness with God on the basis of that. And it forces me then to look for a right standing with God somewhere else based upon something other than law, even the law of Moses. And as a result, it pushes me to a faith in Christ. And then once I put my faith in Jesus for my salvation, the law has finished its job in my life. It has done the single great thing that it was given to mankind uh, to do. Paul put it this way. Again, we'll see it in Romans chapter 10 someday, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the reason putting my faith in Jesus as my Savior and Lord is the end of the law of righteousness is because when I put my faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness is then put to my account. So now when God looks at me and looks at any Christian, 
He no longer sees me in terms of uh, my uh, sin. Uh, he, he no longer looks at me in terms of, uh, of all of the, the past sin that, that I have uh, committed. And, and, and when he looks at me in terms of my suitability for heaven, he doesn't see my unrighteousness. He only sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus that has been put to my account through faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the righteousness that heaven will accept. And the Bible teaches very clearly that any attempt to establish my own righteousness or my own right standing before God based upon works, it reveals an ignorance in a person's life. Paul doesn't say it to offend us. But a person who is still endeavoring to get to heaven someday by being a little bit better than they are bad, that is a person who is desperately ig ignorant of a great fact related to uh, salvation and one day uh, getting uh, into heaven. And the ignorance that it reveals is an ignorance of the only righteousness that God will accept within our lives. And that is Jesus' righteousness, a perfect righteousness. Paul in Romans chapter 10 again, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, the standard that's required for heaven, and seeking to establish their own righteousness on works, have not submitted to the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God gives us through faith in his Son. And once a person realizes that perfection is the standard and that each and every one of us have failed that standard, now if we have any sense, we're looking for a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And it is vital for every one of us to realize we cannot earn our way into heaven. Perfection is the standard. Every one of us has fallen short of it. Paul will bring it up uh, later in chapter 3 than we read, and we'll look at it next time in, in chapter 3, verse 10. As, as it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. And he says this after he has condemned the out-and-out -out pagan in chapter 1, the moralist in chapter 2, as he has condemned the Jew in chapter 2 and chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. In chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's his assessment. And that's why God has made the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life uh, in heaven a gift because he knows we cannot earn it. We can't attain to it in any other way. And so at great expense to himself, he has made it a gift to us through his Son. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Holy Spirit declared, Galatians 3, verse 21, is the law against the promises of God, Paul writes? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. In other words, Paul is saying that if the law of Moses 
cannot qualify anyone for heaven, a law given by God himself to man, then certainly no other religion in the world nor the keeping of their laws can ever hope to provide a person with a righteousness that can qualify them for heaven. Paul is not only showing the religious Jew, uh, the Jew, how he is disqualified for heaven on the basis of works, but as a consequence of it, uh, every religious person who's endeavoring to get to heaven in the keeping of some law, that they're disqualified as well. And all of this is precisely the point that Paul wants to uh, drive home. Uh, Again, as we read, and there was a reason that I went to the end of the, uh, toward the end of the chapter in reading verses 19 and 20 and then uh, verse 31, uh, because that constitutes the conclusion of Paul's argument concerning uh, the Jews and the law of Moses. One of the things about Paul, when you read (laughs) read him, he's, he's, he, he keeps me up at night, that guy. And, uh, and uh, you know, Peter wrote about sometimes the things that he said are, are misunderstood and so forth. But sometimes when Paul is writing, again, by the Spirit of God, I mean, his plot is so thick, his descriptions are so thorough that oftentimes you have to go uh, to the end of his thought or to the end of the point in the passage uh, that he's making in order to stay on track. And so we do here. Everything he's saying to the Jew here, uh, he encapsulates there in verses 19 and 20 and then in verse uh, 31 uh, as well. He then declares that their guilt could also be established on the basis of their treatment of the rite of circumcision in verses 25 through 29. Uh, The rite of circumcision was instituted by God for the Jewish people uh, at the time of Abram, Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 17. And it was a physical sign of the covenant that was made between God and the descendants of Abraham. But with God... The thing that was supreme about physical circumcision wasn't the physical circumcision. It wasn't that it was going to make them distinctive in a Gentile world, but it was a physical act that was intended to uh, represent an inward reality related to uh, their own heart. And the circumcision represented spiritually the cutting away of the flesh that the Jewish people were not to be a people that were ruled by the flesh or their old Adam nature, but to be ruled by God. And so physical uh, circumcision was intended to be an outward symbol of an inward reality and a heart attitude toward God and toward his uh, command, uh, commandments. It was intended to be, uh, it, 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 that, that was the uh, intent of it, that their hearts were given, to be given over to God as opposed to being dominated by the flesh. But again, the Jews, by the time of, of Paul's time, they had turned circumcision on its head as well. It had been reduced to, over time, uh, again, the great mistake that the Jews made was to think that the physical act of circumcision meant more to God than what God had given it to represent. 
uh, that I am, and what it was meant to represent was, I am a person who no longer lives for the flesh, but I live for God, and I live for His commandments. But Paul, as he lays out here, circumcision of the flesh without a cleansing of the heart, it's meaningless to God. Now you're putting the symbol before the substance, and that's exactly what they were doing. God spoke of this even in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Paul, God speaking of the symbolism of circumcision, he said, therefore, circumcise the foreskins of your heart and be stiff-necked no more. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah even chimed in on this as he uh, spoke for the Lord. In Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves, he declared, to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury, God said, come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. And so at the time, within Judaism, at the time that Paul writes this letter, people are practicing circumcision as an outward ritual without giving any kind of serious uh, commitment or consideration to the fact that it was supremely, uh, what was supremely important to God was not the physical rite of circumcision, but that it was done to express a commitment. I'm going to live for God. I love God, and I'm going to obey His commandments. And thus, Paul declares in those verses that circumcision plus obedience is profitable, but circumcision and disobedience is not profitable. And then he goes on and declares in a way that would absolutely stun the Jewish world. At the time, he said, an uncircumcised Gentile who obeys God's commandments is to be preferred over a Jew who is circumcised and, and yet is disobedient to God's law. And the point is this that not only did the law of Moses expose the Jews as sinners, but even their right of circumcision given to Abraham did as well. And again, this great gulf that existed between the holy, obedient life that circumcision represented and was to represent in terms of their heart, and then the life they actually lived was this great gap between those two things was intended to cause them to look ahead ultimately to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of Jesus who would provide a circumcision of the heart as God promised, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, this verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Again, Jeremiah, but in a different place. Uh, verse th uh, 31, chapter 31, verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And as a result of it, the Jews should never have been surprised 
when Jesus came into the world and then declared that he was the source of a new covenant with God, a new covenant that involved the heart and required a spiritual birth. This should not have shocked them. God spoke of it in the Old Testament. And when Jesus famously, in John John chapter 3, when Jesus is meeting with one of the most religious men you could ever find in the world, both then and now, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, this guy was dropped dead serious about God and keeping the law of Moses. And yet Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and he said, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again to experience both a physical birth, but then also a spiritual birth. And let me close very quickly with these, what Paul deals with in the first eight verses here of chapter 3. He anticipates, as he does all the way through here, he anticipates that what he's just said about circumcision and said about the law, it's going to produce an immediate protest on the part of the Jews who are listening to what he has to say. And so, uh, rather than have them write him, he includes them in the letter. And uh, Paul could very well have been having an argument in his own mind. He was once one of these uh, men. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and yet he and now a Christian. He understood how the whole thing worked from one end to the other. And he knows that what he said here is going to raise questions, so he poses the questions before they're even raised and then uh, answers them. So you've got this imaginary dialogue uh, that's going on uh, with Paul, with the Jews, concerning what he's just taught. And, the, and there's three objections, essentially, and the first objection is encapsulated in verses 1 through 2, and the objection is in verse 1, where a Jew might think, if the Jews are lost like everyone else, and true circumcision is of the heart, then what good is it being a Jew? What's the difference between being a Jew or being a Gentile? Paul, you make it sound as if being God's chosen people hasn't given us any advantage at all over being a Gentile. Uh, Is there no advantage uh, in being a Jew uh, over a Gentile? And Paul answers in in verse 2, and he essentially declared that there are many advantages to being a Jew uh, over a Gentile under the old covenant. And chief among them was uh, that God had entrusted the Word of God to them. Uh, But the entrusting of the Word of God to them should have made them more obedient to God's Word than the Gentile world, and in their history they were not, and it should have caused them to recognize Jesus as Messiah long before the Gentile world did. The second objection is in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 has the objection, does Jewish unbelief cancel out the promises that God made uh, to uh, the Jews? And Paul answers in verse 4 and and declares essentially, man's unfaithfulness does not affect God's faithfulness at all. Every word of his will be revealed to be true, and every man uh, a liar. And then the third objection is there in verses 5 through 8. And the objection is in verse 5. And here's the logic of someone. You, you probably know someone like this. Um, 
So here's the guy, he's listening to what Paul has to say and, he, and describing Jews as the sinners. Everybody's as much as the Gentiles in need of a Savior and, and so forth. And, uh, and so he, he's got this thought progression going on in, in his mind and his objection goes like this. Well, when, when God forgives sinners, uh, his grace is manifested. And I am a sinner and so the more I sin, the more opportunity I give him to manifest his grace in the world to glorify himself. In other words, how can God judge me for being a sinner? I'm actually doing a good thing in sinning because I'm so bad, I make God look good. <laughs> and if you don't think, there are people that don't think that today, you've got to get out more. This is, is crazy, but this is the kind of thing I'm sure Paul was running into on a regular basis. And he, his answer is, in verses 6 through 8, he says, no way, how, or else how could God judge the world? Sin is, it, it does not glorify a holy God. If it did, then how would he judge this world at all? Just because God is able to make everything, even the wrath of man or the praise of man uh, uh, or the sin of man, to praise him, it doesn't make the sinner any less responsible for his sin. It is never right to do wrong. And so Paul concludes his condemnation of the Jew who might wish one day to stand before God on the day of judgment based upon his own righteousness, on the basis of his own effort to keep the law of Moses. And this message, and I think that um, these last three sermons for sure, um, uh, I know they're dense. I don't know how, lo how long uh, people track uh, with it, whether I lose some of you in five minutes or I have you all the way through. But I think uh, sometimes a person visiting the church or whatever, new to church, can sit in a, a pew or a seat like this and listen to me uh, say uh, the kind of things that I've said one thing after another, after another, after another, after another, like a machine gun and think, is this guy out of his mind? Does he think anyone is listening to what he has to say after minute seven? And yet I say it anyway, because it needs to be said. It needs to be said. God is establishing the guilt of the entire world before him. And he leaves an absolutely airtight case on the issue. We'll get to perkier passages all the way through the rest of Romans. It isn't all Romans, chapters 1 through 3. But if this isn't established, then what good is it to speak of a Savior and God's provision for our sin if we don't recognize that we need a Savior and God's provision of forgiveness for our sins? And to me, this message this morning is perhaps even more important than the previous two in terms of uh, the condemnation earlier of, of the out-and-out -out sinner or last week the condemnation of the morally educated man. 
because to me, as large as the numbers might be in, in terms of how they're numerically represented uh, in the world even today, uh, the overwhelming majority of the world remains very religious. And the overwhelming majority of the world will not enter into hell on the path of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but rather on the path of some Christless religion based upon the lie and the false idea that I can somehow live a life that is good enough to merit a relationship with God and an entrance into the white-hot holiness of God. And what we've spoken about this morning, if somebody stood behind a pulpit and declared this for eight hours, it wouldn't be enough. It is so important that this be understood. And so Paul commits the kind of time and attention and detail to it, and we endeavor to try and understand it on some surface level uh, as he does here. I know how to preach from the book of Romans. I know how to do a whole series of, of messages from the book of Romans, and we can come to the end of it, and you won't have the foggiest idea of what the book means and what it's aiming for. And so we try to follow his train of thought. What is he saying? Because what he's really saying, the reason the book is in the Bible, is absolutely priceless. Do I want to stay in Romans chapter 1 through 3 uh, for the rest of my life? Absolutely not. And, and so we won't. But what it says is as desperately needs to be heard today as ever it did 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote the letter. If you are not yet a Christian, I don't say if you are not moral. I do not say if you, if you are not morally educated. I do not say even if you are not religious. If you have never been born again, if you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that this morning. All of this is written to prepare you, to show you your need, but not to leave you there, but then to reveal to you that everything that you're looking for in religion is there in spades, is there on steroids in a personal relationship with God that comes into being through faith in his son. And if you've never done that, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to uh, enter into that life this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning in your life that you're dealing with, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the black and white clarity of your word. It's just simply unmistakable as it deals with the out-and-out -out pagan, as it deals with the morally relative person, as it deals with even the Jew, the hyper-religious, the most serious about uh, you and religion and the mistake that is so often made there. And Lord, at every step we're revealed to be a sinner. But as I've just said, Lord, we thank you so much that you don't leave us there. You could have left us there. You could have left Romans with just three chapters, but you didn't. 
Is all of this just written in order to open up our eyes to see the glory of a Savior born into the world and then to ultimately die the death that we deserved upon the cross, but our death would have meant nothing on that cross, and then to be buried and to rise again on the third day and to provide us with a perfect righteousness. We are humbled, Lord, as we look at the darkness of chapters 1 through 3, at the glory of the light and the beauty of the glory that you've brought into our lives through Jesus. Thank you for your love behind all of it. We bless you for it this morning, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday night we go